here for everyone to have their own. But there, if there's a pew Bible near you, you can uh, maybe open that up. Let's turn to Matthew. <clears throat> Chapter 28. We're going to go on a journey through Scripture for a little while here. Um, and what we're going to be focusing on and thinking about this morning is God and His Spirit, as we have been doing this summer. Uh, but specifically this morning, I want to talk to you and we want to take a journey through Scripture look, looking at how God's Spirit enables us to witness to the lost and to share our faith with people. And so we got Matthew 28 here. Uh, it's page 706 of your pew Bible. This is a familiar passage. Uh, as I asked you to turn to Matthew 28, I'm sure most of you probably thought, I know what he's reading. It's the Great Commission. This is known as the Great Commission. If you've been part of our church probably for more than six months or so, there's a very good chance you've heard of Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Uh, starting, let's start in verse 18. This is right before Jesus ascends into heaven, and he's speaking to his followers who have been with him for many years. He has one final, one very important message to give to them. And it's this. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The reason I said that this passage might be familiar to you if you've been part of our church for very long is because if you look at our banner over to my left here, as you, you maybe see that every single Sunday, very crucial to this mission of our church is Matthew 28, the Great Commission, where Jesus tells us to go and make disciples of all nations. Over the past few years, I'm sure you've heard many times that our desire as a church is to move in this direction of becoming a church known as a group of individual Christians and a group uh, together as the body of Christ that is known as, that is identified as, uh, living out this mission to reach the world for Jesus. And... Uh, you may have noticed uh, in past months or years, we now have a very intentional discipleship process in our church uh, that's designed and focused towards helping us to guide people and guide ourselves through the process of becoming a disciple. If you were to ask me what a disciple is, I might say a few things. One thing I would definitely include in my definition of what a disciple is, is that it is a journey. In other words, being a disciple is not a destination. It's not something that you become and therefore you are now there. Being a disciple is a journey. It's a path. There's movement in being a disciple. And so that's what we would like all of you and ourselves, uh, all of us as, as a church, we want to be moving along this discipleship journey of becoming more like Christ. Um, we also have life groups now in our church that are very intentionally focused those that were at our life group leaders retreat uh, a couple months ago now uh, have seen this incredible focus now uh, within our life groups towards living out our mission and accomplishing this mission. You guys are all going to have a, an opportunity to join some of those groups in about a month, and uh, we really hope and pray that you consider being a part of a life group this fall so that we can fill, fulfill our mission as a church. The reason I bring all this up to you, the reason I read this passage again this morning, and I say these things again this morning, is because I wonder often how many of us, as there's another time where somebody's up here and they're talking about our mission, 
And what they're doing is they're trying to say to you, you guys, we need to be sharing our faith. You need to be sharing Jesus, be sharing God's love and grace with those that are in your workplace, those in your community. I wonder how many of us, when we hear that, continually feel as I often feel or have felt, and that is most basically this pressure, this feeling of just please leave me alone. I, I can't do that. I'm, how many of you feel I'm not good at that? How many of you have thought before when you've heard, even if you just heard me say that, you thought, I don't know how to do that, I'm, I, or I'm not very good at doing that? It's very common for us when we think about sharing Jesus with people to think, I'm just not good at it. When we think about baptizing people, how many think, well, that's, that's Kelly's job, to baptize people? How many of you baptized somebody before or even know how to baptize somebody? The first time I did it, I literally had no clue what was going on or what I was doing. Um, but it, I think it's very common, and I'm with all of you if you feel that way. I have good news, and my good news for you this morning, if you're feeling that way, is the fact that you don't need to know how to share Jesus with people. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to be trained. You don't need to be talented. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be old and smart and wise. And you don't have to be young and energetic. You need nothing more than to be you and to have God's Spirit a part of your life. The only thing required to share Jesus with people is God's Spirit a part of your life. Now that's good news. But in some ways, that might be bad news as well. (laughs) And the reason I say that might be bad news is because of what is required to have God's Spirit working in us powerfully. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles again. Let's turn to John 14. We'll move ahead in our Bibles. We'll move back in time. And so we were just where Jesus was about to ascend into heaven. Let's go back into His ministry. And he's, He's now talking to his followers here in John 14, page 764 in your pew Bible. He's talking to his disciples, actually, about when he's going to be leaving them. And he's wanting to comfort his followers. And it's interesting, I didn't kind of point out in Matthew 28, I don't know if you've ever interested how or noticed how interesting or odd it is that Jesus, directly before he leaves his apostles, he says, Surely I'm with you always, to the very end of the age. So he says that and then he leaves them. That's odd unless you've, you've turned to John 14 and you've read John 14. Let's, let's start in verse 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey what I command, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he'll be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. And then Judas, not, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he'll obey my teaching. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. 
But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. And so here in John 14, Jesus promises his followers that he is not going to leave them as orphans. He's, he's going to be leaving, but that they are going to be sending the Spirit, this Spirit that is one with the Father, and the Father is one with Jesus. And so fa- the Father and Jesus, who are one, are going to come through the Spirit and make their home in our hearts. And so John 14, we read another familiar passage to some of us, but it, it's familiar, but in an incredible passage, this promise of Jesus Christ to send his Holy Spirit to literally make a home inside of our hearts. Let's skip ahead to Acts chapter 1, page 770 in your pew Bible. And so Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 28, we read about him giving this great command to to go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, Acts 1 is an amazing chapter where we actually have some examples of, or sorry, some stories of Jesus after he has died and he's risen from the dead. And so in Acts 1, I want to read for you this very brief, just verses 4 and 5, but this incredible story of a risen Jesus Christ spending time with his followers and what he tells them. So verse 4, he says, On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem. I'll just stop there for one second. Because as I read that originally, a while ago, I thought, it's interesting that Jesus wants them to go and make disciples, and one of his final things he says to them is, don't leave Jerusalem. Let's read why. He says, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, Jesus clearly shows us his desire to not be reliant upon ourselves to go and make disciples of all nations. When I think, I can't do it, I'm not gifted, who's going to train me? Um, I'm just, to me personally, I'm the type of person who is far more comfortable, I'm, I'm the most comfortable on my couch in my living room or just anywhere where I'm by myself, that's where I'm comfortable. In other words, I'm uncomfortable right now. (laughs) Um, And so when I hear this, you need to be going out, you need to be sharing your faith with people. That is is a difficult thing for me to think about. But what Jesus tells us here in Acts 1 to 4 to 5 is, I don't want you to do it on your own, Peter. He tells his followers to wait in Jerusalem for God's Spirit to come and be a part of them. And then God's power is what is going to lead them in living out their call as Christians. You just look at the, the following page in Acts 2. I'm not going to read through all of this, but this Acts, chapter 2 of Acts, we read about the Holy Spirit coming. They did what Jesus asked them to do. They waited in Jerusalem in an upper room. They prayed for days and days. And then this whole, the Holy Spirit comes and fills them. If you look down at verse 14 of chapter 2, It says, Then Peter stood up with the eleven, he raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. I want to remind all of us this morning who Peter is. And the fact that Peter is is a fisherman. I don't know if you've been around people who have been fishing all day. They kind of stink like fish. (laughs) 
Um, but Peter's living as a fisherman. Peter was not a leader in the synagogue. He wasn't a trained scholar. He wasn't a highly educated, astute man of honor within the culture. Peter was a fisherman. Peter's also the guy who, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane pulled the sword out, cut the ear off of the soldier as Jesus was about to be arrested. Shortly after that, Jesus is the man who's being questioned. Weren't you the guy who's with Jesus? And he denies even knowing Jesus three times, right? This is not a man of incredible faith and ability. This man, Peter, stood up. He raised his voice and addressed the crowd. And in front of thousands of people, Peter began to talk about the Israelite history and who Jesus is in relation to the Israelite history and that Jesus is salvation, the chosen one. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus and follow him. Make him your leader of your, the leader of your life. And then at the end of chapter 2, verse 41, I was actually shocked when I read this for the very first time when I was 22 years old. I'd heard it before, but I didn't actually listen to it. Verse 41 says, Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. And I, wanted, I just wanted to share Acts 2 with you because I've shared, we've just read Acts 1, we've read John 14, we've, we've understood from Scripture that Jesus wants, or requires, we require God's Spirit if we're to witness effectively. And the apostles waited. Peter is filled with God's Spirit. And what does he do? He stands up and all of a sudden he's a preacher. All of a sudden thousands of people are responding to this fisherman's message. And that is the power of God's Spirit working in somebody. Okay, you can close your Bibles now or you can leave it open. Um, An interesting... Anyways, never mind. I can talk to you about that later. But... Um, this past week, I was watching the Olympics quite a few times. Um, did anybody see the clip from NBC of the parents watching their daughter perform gymnastics? Anyone see that? <laughs> I can see the people who are laughing saw it. There's this incredible clip that NBC had a, a camera on the, the set of parents. Their daughter was performing. She's an 18-year-old performing in gymnastics at the Olympics on this world stage. So they had a camera and microphones on this set of parents, the poor parents. You can imagine as parents of a, an 18-year-old who's on the world stage at the Olympics, just a little bit of an anxiety, nervousness for your daughter. Um, it was just, if you haven't seen it, I just encourage you to go and you can find it on YouTube. I couldn't show it to you this morning because of copyright or whatever. I couldn't find it even. But These set of parents are sitting in their seats up in the stage surrounded by just average spectators or normal spectators or whatever. And they start to, as, as her daughter begins, they start to grimace and make funny faces and their heads start to sway around almost in unison with each other. And the mom was making the weirdest noises that kind of sounded like words, but they're more grunts. Like she was literally grunting and uh, the dad was just mumbling and it was just the, the, the craziest thing uh, to watch. It was actually quite painful to watch, but also quite joyful. It was... I laughed. I watched it about four or five times in my office laughing quite a bit. Kelly had to come down and watch it too. Um, but later on that night, uh, actually I was in the middle of the night, about three in the morning, I woke up to somebody 
hitting my chest really hard. It was my five-year-old daughter, Eva. And, she, and I jolted awake thinking something terrible had happened. What had happened was she couldn't find Lucy. Lucy is her stuffed animal. It's a stuffed little lion. And for about four years now, since she was, before she was two, uh, she cannot go to sleep. She won't go to sleep. She could, but she won't go to sleep without Lucy by her side. If you go into her room any night, any night of the year, uh, she's asleep for three hours. If it's midnight, she is hugging Lucy tightly as she sleeps. She sleeps all night hugging Lucy. And she came into my room because she'd woken up in the middle of the night. She couldn't find Lucy. And so I got out of bed at 3 in the morning, and I went and fumbled around in the dark and found Lucy at the foot of her bed, gave her Lucy. She hugged her, turned over, and went to sleep. And I went back to bed. About 30 minutes later, I hear crying and screaming. And this time it's my two-year-old son who is on the bottom bunk. And he's just crying out in the middle of the night. And so I laid, I kind of kneel down beside him and I put my hand on his chest. And as soon as I put my hand on his chest, he stopped crying and rolled over. I was like, well, that was easy. <laughs> Until I realized I couldn't get my hand off his chest or his uh, back, sorry. I couldn't get my hand off his back. I thought he was sleeping. I heard some deep breathing, so I took my hand off. Thought I'd go back to bed, and poof, immediately screaming again. So I put my hand back on his on his back. If you're a parent, you've probably experienced this before. And so I just quietly I listened to his breathing. And he's breathing heavier and heavier. So I'm like, okay, he's asleep. And I'm like, literally, this time I'm real slow. I don't want to make any sudden movements. And I get it off, and immediately starts crying. He wasn't asleep again. And so I've, before with Eva, I used to do that for a long time, but now I. I just crawled into bed with him and decided, whatever, I'm going to sleep in his bed. <laughs> so I laid down beside him and I put my arm around him. And again, he just started going back to sleep. And as I laid there looking at my son, considering just I, my daughter who could not, she woke up in the middle of the night and she didn't have her stuffed animal. She needed to come get her dad to find it. And my son who just, out of, he just could not go to sleep. He could not settle down until he had his dad's hand on his back. I was amazed by the, the contrast as what I actually thought of was those parents at the Olympics watching their daughter, incredibly terrified for their daughter. They had no control over their daughter. They were completely separate from them. They, they, they really wanted to, you could tell, <laughs> have their arm around their daughter or hold their hand of their daughter as she performed, but there's no way she could do it. There's, what I was amazed by was the contrast of the independence of this Olympian or all the Olympians at the Olympics how they're, com- they're completely independent on their own. They have the support of their trainers and their parents while they're training. But when it comes time performing, they're on their own by themselves. They have to do it on their own. And then I thought about, you know, that 18-year-old daughter. I looked up, I'm looking at my son here, um, you know, breathing fast asleep now in the comfort of his dad's arms and was just amazed at the complete and utter dependence of this young guy that I have to come and sleep with him in order for him to be able to sleep. And where my mind ended up going as I laid there somehow in the middle of the night when I should have been sleeping, where my mind ended up, ended up going was how often am I act, trying to be an Olympian for God? You'll see in your bulletin this morning, the title of my sermons is You Don't Need... God Doesn't Want Olympians. What I began thinking about was... How often, as I'm wanting to go and live out my calling that Christ has given to me, when I want to follow Jesus Christ, am I thinking, I, I need to be trained first? Like, I don't know how to do that. I'm not, or, I'm not good at that. That's not one of my talents. That's, I think, for many of us, our natural 
reaction to that. And what I was thinking is when I, whenever I'm thinking, I can't do that, I, I don't have that gift or that ability, uh, I, I need, or else I'll do it, but I need to be fully trained. And what I'm doing, it was basically what I'm attempting to be as an Olympian for God. I'm trying to, he's my trainer, I'm going to be trained, and then I'm going to go out and do it. In other words, I'm not trusting, I'm not being dependent on God. And, and what I actually was overwhelmed with, and I started, tears actually came to my eyes, I was so overwhelmed with this, is that God needs me to be like Ezra. God needs us to be like a two-year-old boy crying out in the middle of the night because we need our Father's hand on our side. That is the kind of dependence required. It's one thing for me to share with you or for us to even just look in Scripture and see God's Spirit is necessary if we're to effectively share Christ. It's another thing to know how to have God's Spirit or to actually have His Spirit a part of our lives. And this dependency... Can, can, that I'm trying to refer to here, it can best be described if, if I just ask you, what is one of your first reactions when something bad happens in your life? If someone you know or with yourself, if you say you lose a job or something terrible happens in your life where you just, all of a sudden, it's out of your control. There's just these things happening and it's like a snowball rolling down a hill getting bigger and bigger. Where do you turn? What do you do? Where do most people in the world turn, let alone Christians? Where we turn is to prayer, right? My immediate reaction when I heard about my brother's wife leaving him was just... It's like Kelly was talking about a few, year, few, few weeks back. It's just crying out in prayer. When we enter these periods of our life where we're forced into dependency upon God... The automatic reaction is prayer, and so I, I share that because I want to, to. I just wanted to mention this morning that I'd, I'd argue that I think all of you probably know you need to be dependent upon God. When I say you need to, you need to trust in God. You say, well, yeah, of course, I know, I know, I need to trust in God. I, I know that too. But I have to ask myself the question continually: Do I actually trust God? And when I think about how often I'm praying, how often am I engaged in prayer? I think that's a sure sign to me at certain points in my life, I am not trusting in God. I'm relying upon myself. It's easy to struggle to pray when we're not actually being dependent upon God with our lives. I want to, just, I want to finish this morning with a quick story. And it's a story about a guy who was completely um, transformed by God's Spirit. And it's actually from my life. It's my story. I was trying to think of a story I could share with you guys. I shared Acts 2 and, and Peter. And I want to share with you about another Peter that God's worked with. Um, and it's not my life story. I want to start when I was 18 years old. I, I went to a Christian high school. And so I graduated from high school. Uh, and at that time, my parents, who are here this morning... Hey, guys. And my brothers, my sisters, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins, my grandparents, my friends, my teachers, every single influence, every single person in my life at that time, besides a couple of bad influences, (laughs) they were all pressuring me and all pushing me to please take a year of Bible college. Please just, even if you don't get a Bible degree, just take a year of Bible college. And I had every influence. There's a college in Winnipeg who was trying to recruit me to play basketball for them. 
It was a Bible college. And I, I, honest, I honestly, for not one second, considered going to Bible college. With all of that influence and pressure, there was no other direction that I had in life. There's nothing else I wanted to do. I didn't have any alternative thing to say, well, I don't want to go to Bible college. I want to go do this. I had nothing else. The only pressure I had in my life or influence was to go to Bible college. There was no way I was ever going to go to Bible college. What that attitude did was it, and you've heard more of this story, over four or five years, I made every wrong decision I could possibly make, and I basically took my life down a path toward likely one of the deepest, darkest holes I could possibly be able to handle and ever get out of without being permanently there. And I want to continue the story. After those five, four or five years there, I found myself in Regina trying to climb up out of the hole I dug. And I'd basically call this period of my life uh, just a period of recovery. I'm just trying to get my feet back under me and be a, find my identity, find out who I am. I was working at a, a call center. I actually worked at a few call centers then. I was a great call center employee. I worked at Staples Call Center, and I found myself in a position in life where Staples Call Center was my calling. (laughs) That was where I was going to be. That was what I was going to do. I played in a band, and it was perfect. I made good money. I got holidays when I wanted, and there was a chance to make some more money. And so I had my life set for the next 10 or 15 years. I was going to work at a call center. And one day... Um, Chelsea worked there as well for a while. We were dating. And so I was quite often late for my breaks because <laughs> we would have breaks and lunch together. So the policy was, I don't, I don't know all the details anymore, but the policy was a certain amount of lates in this period of time. My manager told me, don't worry about it. It doesn't really matter. I have to talk to you about this, but I really don't care. You're just a minute late. And I, won't, I won't care. She retired, and then we got a new manager And his very first day, I was two minutes late for my break. And he decided, I'm going to just make a statement for everyone here. (laughs) He called me into his office. As he was talking to me, he sent guys to pack up my cubicle. They escorted me to the door, and I was gone. (laughs) And uh, even though it might seem weird, that was actually at the time this incredible crush to my life. For the first time in my life, I felt as, as whatever. You can think what you want about working at a call center. For me at that time in my life, I had my life planned. And all of a sudden, it was not planned anymore. And uh, what that led to was a couple days later deciding, I need to go to school. Duh. (laughs) I need to go to school. And uh, what I decided to do immediately was I was going to take audio engineering. I was in a band, and I wanted to be in the music industry, producing, engineering music. And so I looked everywhere high and low within driving distance for an audio engineering recording arts program. The only program I could find was Briarcrest Bible College, about 50 minutes away. And so I, I was like, okay, I guess I have to go to this, this school to do it. There's not one second where I considered the fact that it was a Bible college. There was not one second where I thought, I should take some Bible courses while I was there. In fact, the opposite was true. I was thinking, I hope I can do this without having to take Bible classes. That was exactly how I thought. Because I had to get student loans, I needed to be a full-time student. If I needed, if I, in order to be a full-time student, I had to take Bible classes. <laughs> I actually only had to take one Bible class. That was a little bit too much for me, but I did it anyways. And I found myself 
my first day of school after five years of doing nothing, really nothing with my life. First day of school, it was 7.30 in the morning when class started. I remember that because I remember looking out the window. It was still dark outside in January. I remember thinking I might die because I should still be in bed. Um, Also, it was like minus 50 outside too, but... It was 7.30 in the morning. I was incredibly tired, and I was literally thinking, what in the world am I doing here? I was in a public speaking class. And I took public speaking because I was in a band, specifically, and I had to be up on stage, which terrified me every time I had to do it. But for another thing is, is I wanted to be able to actually talk into my microphone that stood there sometimes in front of me, which I couldn't do. At that time in my life, all my life, and, and up to that point, I, I was the type of person, if you put me up in front of the stage, to t- on the stage to talk, I felt like my, my chest or my lungs were going to kind of collapse and cave in on me. I'm sure there's others that kind of feel that way when they have to get up in front of people. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to take public speaking. I guess I should get better at this. What I did 15 minutes into that class was decide I'm dropping this class <laughs> because I found out, of course, that I'm going to have to give speeches. I don't, and I immediately decided I'm going to drop this class But the more significant thing I decided during that class, and the only way I can explain this, you guys, is that God's Spirit, in a very powerful way, completely consumed everything that I am. It was about 20 minutes or so later. The class was... Before the class ended, the professor was giving his testimony. He'd been in ministry for about 15, 17 years. And he was giving his testimony. I don't remember any detail of his story about where he worked. or I don't remember anything of his story but what I do remember is about five minutes into his story, in an instant, everything became clear to me. I knew with all of my heart there was not any doubt. I was 100% confident that I am to be a preacher. I was 20 minutes after I decided, and I still did it, I dropped that class. I decided I was going to drop public speaking. I was just... And 20 minutes later, I'm like, I'm going to be a preacher. I, I literally walked up to that professor after class, and I said, I said, I think I want to be a preacher, but I don't really know how. Can you help me, tell me how to be a preacher? And I'm sure after kind of laughing inside, he didn't laugh in my face, but he, he led me over to the head of the pastoral department. By the time I left school, my first day, I, was, I completely changed my entire degree I was on my way, signed up for a theology degree, taking all Bible classes. I walked into my apartment at home. Chelsea and I were dating. I still remember like it was yesterday. She came over to cook for our supper. We we're going to have supper together. So I walked and put my bag in, and I walked to the kitchen door, and I'm standing in the doorway. She was cooking chicken with her back turned to me at the counter. And I remember saying, I think I've shared this with you guys. I said to her, Chelsea, what would you think about marrying a preacher? And she literally laughed out loud. And I laughed along with her. And the reason that she laughed and that I continued laughing with her is because I remember, I remember again later on that evening, because obviously we talked about that. There was <laughs> some discussion that happened, and I couldn't even explain to her. I just said, Chelsea, I know this is what I'm going to do. This is what I have to do. And I remember sitting on the couch that night, honestly thinking, there is absolutely no way I will ever work in a church. I was a, I just, there's no way that anyone will ever hire me, and there's definitely no way I will ever preach in a church. There was, I just, there was no way I was ever going to preach in a church. Two years later, the Victoria Church of Christ hired me as their youth and worship pastor. And six years later, I'm on the stage right now 
preaching somehow. And the way that that is happening is because God has transformed my life and it's God's presence in my life. The only way I can literally get up on stage here, the only way I, when I lead worship, the only way I can do it is I literally have to, to go into my office or I have to get somewhere by myself to focus and to, to really bring myself back to that, st- that point where I understand God's Spirit is in me. I don't need to be good at this. I don't need to know how. I don't need to get up here and be crafty with my words, although it would be helpful. God's Spirit can do anything through me, but I do need to be dependent upon Him. And I want to sh- I share that story with you because, and I share this whole message with you because I want this morning to, to share a story uh, of how God has, in, through His Spirit, has completely changed someone. Many of you guys have experienced this in your own lives. I realize that. The other reason I wanted to share this story with you is because I want to confess this morning that after seven years of youth ministry, it's more of a struggle now for me than it ever has been to be dependent upon God. The reason for that is because when I started youth ministry, I had never taken a youth ministry class and had no clue what I was doing. I had no option but to completely be dependent upon God. Seven years later, I have a lot of experience in youth ministry. I've gained a lot of knowledge within ministry and in churches. And so it's really easy to kind of just rely upon my experiences, to rely upon what I already know, and to go through life without entering into prayer to actually look towards God in dependence and say, God, what new do you want to do with me? What, what else should I be doing? And so for those of you this morning who have been Christians for even a long time, I encourage you guys to keep a daily focus on your dependence upon God, specifically on having your, this, this attitude of a child. You don't need to be an Olympian for God. You need to be a dependent, completely, 100% needy child crying out to have him by your side. If you do that, I 100%, I know in my heart and I guarantee that you will do things that you, you don't think you can do. You don't need to be talented. You need to have God's spirit in you. Thanks.